Good morning. As Sarah said, it's a joy to be back. We had a great time away, but we do miss being here with our church family. I'm going to start with a joke. I don't usually tell many jokes. Um, it's said that there are three kinds of people when it comes to personal finance. There are the haves and the have-nots and the have-not-yet-paid-for-what-they-have. <laughs> Americans are mostly in the third category, right? We are drowning in debt as a nation. Our national debt's $30 trillion plus. We're also drowning in debt as individuals. Household personal debt in mortgages, student loans, and auto loans exceeds $16 trillion. From January 20 to December 21, over the last two years, a million people filed for bankruptcy. And that was in good times, right? Today, people are protected from the complete destruction and even death that bankruptcy can bring. In ancient times, that was not so. Two law review articles from the 1920s took me down a rabbit hole of ancient Roman bankruptcy law. What I discovered was really terrifying. Roman law at the time of Jesus permitted 30 days for the repayment of an overdue debt. After that, the debtor was arrested and brought before a magistrate. And unless someone could pay this debt, the person was or the creditor was permitted to take the debtor, bind him with chains weighing no more than 15 pounds, and put him to use as a slave. The creditor was required to provide at least one pound of bread per day. If after 60 days the debtor's family did not settle the debt, the debtor was brought into the marketplace on three occasions separated by a week. And the debt was publicly declared. If after that point, no one had come forward to settle the debt, the debtor was punished with death or sold into slavery or remained a slave with the creditor. And in the case of multiple creditors, they may, and I quote, each cut their various portions of his body and anyone that cuts more or less than his just share shall be held guiltless. Forgive us our debts, as you see, is a plea about a matter of life and death. You can substitute sins or trespasses if you wish, but the concept is the same, our failure to live up to the moral standard of our God. So I'm going to reread this text from Matthew 6, chapter, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. And I'm going to add on two verses that immediately follow the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's version. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The relevance of those two verses that follow the Lord's Prayer is obvious, I think. I want to look at this verse, verse 12, and then verses 14 and 15, using four framing questions. Why does Jesus include the phrase, forgive us our debts? Why repeatedly ask for forgiveness? Why link our forgiveness from God with our forgiveness of others? And what does forgiveness really mean? So starting with the first one. Why does Jesus include this phrase, forgive us our debts, in the model prayer that he taught? Well, Jesus teaches them a pattern for daily or repeated use as a teaching plan for a life with God. The more we pray this prayer attentively, the more we are formed into a way of life that aligns with this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive as we also have forgiven our debtors, connects with and derives from the first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First, it honors the name of God. Righteousness honors the name of God. And sin shames the name of God. Confessing our sin then experiencing and remembering God's mercy and forgiveness honors the name of God. The petition connects with the coming of his kingdom because God's rule as king means he's the judge that matters. He's the one with the authority to forgive. And it connects with God's will being done because God's will is clearly expressed that we confess our sin, that we agree with him about the nature of sin, that we repent and forgive one another. And I'd say it also connects with the first of the second set of three petitions. Joel, last week, made the point that Jesus taught his disciples the importance of daily dependence and trust in God for their real physical needs. This week we'll pivot towards our daily dependence and trust in God to meet our real spiritual needs. So then why ask for forgiveness repeatedly, or daily even? Haven't our sins been forgiven once for all? Well, there are two forms of forgiveness. There are two senses in which we are forgiven. If we are in Christ, we do have complete and total forgiveness of our sins. We have received it. Hebrews 10, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8 make this very clear. This is part of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven permanently and completely. That is the the deep truth of the perseverance of the saints, the ones whom God has called, He has justified. And those whom he has justified, he has glorified. Yet still, we see that sin hinders our life with God. God hates sin, and our repeated sins by what we do or what we fail to do create friction in our life with God. 
So we still have a daily need to confess and repent, just as we have a daily need to refuel with food and water, symbolized by our daily bread. The good news of Jesus Christ includes the news about how we can live a life of harmony with God after we come to know him. So much in our life of of harmony with God depends on our understanding of what the gospel really is. I'm going to ask Sarah to put the slide up that uh, it's a definition of the gospel from the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I picked one that I happen to be looking at in in a book on the Lord's Prayer. And he says that the sum and substance of the gospel is that a holy and righteous God who must claim a full penalty for our sin both demands that penalty and provides it. His self-substitution is Jesus Christ the Son, whose perfect obedience and perfectly accomplished atonement on the cross purchased all that is necessary for our salvation. Christ is our substitute, and his life is sacrificed for our sin so that God's wrath against us is removed. Amen. There's much to agree with in that. In fact, I agree entirely with it. But I contend that something very important is missing in that definition of the gospel. What's missing here? Hmm, that's that's maybe, but not quite what I'm, that's not quite the good news, I think. I think the piece that helps us explain why Jesus teaches us to pray daily for God's forgiveness of our sins. And that is the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. So this definition of good news suggests that believers in Jesus would still go to heaven even if Jesus had never come out of the grave. The payment for sin was completed on the cross and God's wrath was removed. You see, this form of the gospel only deals with guilt and its consequences. On the other hand, a gospel message that includes the good news about regeneration or the new life with Christ, one marked by resurrection power available to each child of God, to each new believer, that offers a hope and a purpose for each new day. We sang our second song today, Our Living Hope, Jesus Christ, Our Living Hope. That's good news. That's the part of the good news that is missing in this sort of standard definition of the gospel. It addresses our need for the ongoing salvation from habitual sin, which we call sanctification. My mentor, Dallas Willard, says, there is more to life than guilt. Once you've been forgiven, you still have to live. Jesus is about the redemption of actual life from actual sin. It's by entering into his life, which is still ongoing on earth, that we are delivered from actual sin. The New Testament is absolutely clear on this. You can take Colossians 3, Philippians 3, 1 John, Titus 3. All make it clear that the righteousness which is by faith 
is a matter of being delivered from the evil that is all around us in action and that we are in danger of falling into ourselves. So the reason that Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts on a daily or repeated basis is this. Those who trust in him have entered into a new kind of life in union with him in which Christ can be on full display as we learn to submit ourselves to his daily rule. This real everyday life that we live is where we do actual battle with our actual sins and find actual salvation and restoration from them. So we pray this prayer, this phrase, as a daily reminder of sin with particular sins remembered, confessed, and repented of. Jesus wants us to keep on wiping the slate clean. Renewing our relationship again and again in the safety and in the comfort of the Father's love. And one important benefit of this plan is that daily confession and repentance leaves little room for the accuser, about whom we will hear, I expect, in the next petition of the Lord's Prayer. So to summarize thus far, the prayer is a teaching plan for life. Okay? That's why... We ask for forgiveness. But also, the more we pray it, the more we're formed into this life of trusting him for our daily need for restoration and for Christ's life in us. Question three. Why does Jesus add, as we also have forgiven our debtors? Why link our forgiveness from God with the act of forgiving others? Well, there's no doubt that he meant to emphasize this. Jesus expands on it immediately following in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, right? There is a connection between forgiving and being forgiven, or being forgiven and forgiving. But what's the nature of that connection? A superficial reading suggests that forgiving others is a precondition of receiving God's forgiveness. How does that sound? Hmm, right? A little grimace out there. I see a few grimaces. Um, can it be that our salvation would be dependent or contingent upon the degree to which we forgive others? I mean, there's something wrong with that, right? Well, most obviously and importantly, that idea is utterly opposed to the message of the gospel of grace. We heard about that. You know, we read it in the assurance today. The gospel of grace says that God's gift of salvation comes to us by grace alone. Period. It's through faith alone and not by works so that no one can boast. Your forgiving others does not merit you forgiveness from God. No, this teaching of Jesus that's so difficult, that sounds so challenging, it's just like the teachings in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and Matthew 25, the story of the sheep and the goats. In those passages, Jesus, the master teacher, is making his message clear and memorable by challenging his listeners to think deeply about what he's saying, by, by making it sound threatening, in a sense. 
to get through the layers, the barriers that we have that obstruct his teaching. The teaching, I think, is best summarized in James chapter 2, verse 17, where James says, the brother of our Lord says, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. That's the substance of this teaching. Right? That if we do not forgive others, God will not forgive us. The substance of that is faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. One of the older commentaries that I I read on this said that repentance is the precondition of being forgiven. Right? Repentance, not forgiving others. And that, that is a condition not of merit, but of necessity. You cannot receive forgiveness simply cannot do it unless you have a repentant heart. We cannot receive God's atonement without repentance. And he says that the temperament that does not forgive is simply incompatible with the temperament of the repentant. Therefore, the merciless cannot receive God's mercy because they fail to grasp their own condition as sinful and pitiful creatures among a world of others like themselves. And that's the whole point of the parable of the unmerciful servant that we just read earlier in the service. He who truly grasps his need for mercy, whose inconceivably large debt has been freely canceled, must be able to cancel the relatively smaller debt of those, uh, a smaller debt owed him by others. Failure to show mercy simply proves that he is a hypocrite. He has not truly received the gift of God's grace because all who do receive it are changed. I believe Jesus gives us this phrase, this clause, as we also have forgiven others, for at least two reasons. And the first is that it's a safeguard against hypocrisy. Jesus is laser-focused in this section of the Sermon on the Mount on hypocrisy. He talks about hypocrisy in giving, right? Give quietly and silently so that no one knows what you're doing. Don't do it for others. And in praying, go into your closet and pray quietly where the Father sees it or no one else sees it. And in fasting, when you fast, don't look miserable, right? Because you've already received your reward if you do it for others. He's laser-focused on hypocrisy. And it's hypocritical to receive God's forgiveness and not forgive others. We're right in the middle of that section here. Secondly, the clause teaches us the essential reality of life in kingdom community. We live by the grace of God. We live by the grace of God. And we must freely offer that grace and forgiveness to others. There is no other way to live in the kingdom of God in the community of people who he calls his own. All right, number four. What does it mean to forgive others? There's a lot out there on forgiveness. I'm going to give you a 
brief summary of some things that I've learned. Um, this, that, that could go on and on. But psychologists define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or a group who's harmed you, regardless of whether you feel they actually deserve your forgiveness. But I want to make this really simple. What really is the meaning of forgiveness in a word? The Bible uses a word in Greek, it's, it's aphesis. In English, that translates mostly to release. Now just for a moment, don't make it any more complicated than that. Just release. To forgive means to choose someone whom you have been holding in your debt, holding in resentment, holding in bitterness, and release him or her. Just as important as defining what forgiveness is, though, is understanding what forgiveness is not. When you forgive, you do not ignore or condone or deny the seriousness of the offense against you. You release it. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. It might mean forgetting, but it doesn't require forgetting. It just means releasing it. Though forgiveness can help you repair a damaged relationship, it doesn't obligate you to reconcile with the person who harmed you. And furthermore, genuine forgiveness cannot be used to manipulate or coerce a response from the person who offended you. You're releasing them from that offense or that harm. And finally, forgiving another does not necessarily release the person from legal accountability. Now, I have to make one little qualification here. Offenses vary in severity, right? Some call for forbearance. What the Bible calls forbearance is kind of putting up with some stuff, okay? So think about forbearance as exercising tolerance for low-level irritants. You know, like somebody leaves the dirty dishes on the table, they fail to flush the toilet, they don't replace the toilet paper, Uh, they spout some odious political opinion, they talk too much or too loudly, Right? Those are irritants. Those are friction that we feel. But not every friction that we feel in interpersonal relationships is really related to sin. Only a true narcissist really experiences life that way. Right? Proverbs 19.11 says, it's a glory to overlook an offense. That's forbearance. That's putting up with the little things. Colossians 3.13 comes to mind here. It says, bear with each other, that's forbearance, and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now we need that because the truth of our lives is that real people really do real damage to each other regularly, frequently all the time. Every single one of you in this room has been deeply offended or harmed or wounded by someone that you love, by someone that you don't even know. It's happened many times in your life. And you'll continue to be wounded 
and harmed by others, right? Marriage is the crucible of this, where we harm one another, wound one another regularly. We are all the walking wounded in that sense. And we are all called to forgive one another over and over and over again. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. It's the command of God, but it's the command of God for our good, as usual. The practice of forgiveness has tremendous power to heal the human soul. It releases the forgiver from the corrosive forces of anger and resentment. The soul can find peace and rest. Even if forgiveness doesn't generate positive feelings, it involves the release of these deeply held negative feelings. It empowers the forgiver to recognize the pain that you've suffered without letting that pain define you. It enables you to heal and to move forward in life. Multiple research studies show that it makes people happier. It reduces stress. It reduces associated depression and anxiety and anger and obsessive and compulsive rumination. It reduces psychosomatic illness. It reduces physical illness and improves the immune system. Personal benefits, however, are not even close to the end of the story. The practice of forgiveness also has tremendous power to heal relationships within a community. Forgiveness repairs and sustains our relationships and how the church of God needs that. Every one of us has a story or a memory of the destructive power of unforgiveness within the church how poorly that reflects on the life of Christ within his people. Remember, this is a communal prayer, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiving others is perhaps the deepest and the truest practical expression of the kindness and grace we receive from God. In Exodus 34, the Lord announces to Moses his very identity when he he appears before him in his glory. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We image God when we forgive. And it's the very basis of God's relationship with his chosen people. Without forgiveness, communities fracture into smaller and smaller units of resentment. Think of the racial and the political and ethnic divisions we see today in our world and throughout history. Without the ongoing practice of forgiveness, these units grow ever smaller with each new offense until the only person you can live with is yourself. It's the image of hell as portrayed by C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. The gray town where everyone is friendless, joyless, uncomfortable, and unhappy 
and moving ever further apart. Why is it so hard? Why don't we forgive others? There are real barriers. Bitterness wants to hold on to anger and resentment. Vindictiveness desires revenge. Or there may actually be ongoing sin against you. It's hard to forgive someone who keeps offending you. Right? The alcoholic who continuously promises to stop, but then relapses again and again and again. Or the offender may deny the offense. They may completely uh, abrogate all responsibility for what they've done. But I think there's one overarching problem that that nails all of these. And that's that forgiving others always feels unjust. It always feels like there's an injustice in letting go. And Christians have an overdeveloped sense of justice, in my opinion. We are rightly concerned with God's moral laws given in the Ten Commandments and in the teachings of Jesus. But unfortunately, this desire for justice often leads to a practice of condemnation of others who violate the moral law and a desire to see punishment. All of us, I think, are prone to feel the injustice of watching someone get away unpunished. Now, if we're truly to forgive others, we have to first really grasp the gospel message that we already got away unpunished. We ourselves already got away unpunished. We are loved by God with a love that overcomes our own rebellion and sin and offenses toward him. God endured the, injust- endured the injustice of our sin and provided a savior to bear that punishment that we deserved. Furthermore, we are born again into a new kind of resurrection life with God that grants us access to the same power that raised Christ from the grave and gave him the power to obey the Father, a power that enables us also to forgive others. Romans 5, verse 6 starts, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's even more succinct, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we pray daily, as our Father as our Savior taught us. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. May we be formed into the righteousness of God, the image and likeness of our Lord Jesus, as we pray and practice forgiveness for one another. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, our debt is so far greater than we ever imagine. 
the 10,000 bags of gold that you forgave to the unmerciful servant. There's a great image. An unpayable debt. And yet you have forgiven us. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the life of Christ, that we would forgive others as you have forgiven us. Grant us grace to see and to know the beauty of your ways and grace to overcome the barriers that stand in our way. Lord, fill us, teach us as we practice this prayer that you taught us. Amen.